You are now tuned into anything potable. The most honorable. The most audible. Hold the applause. Welcome to Anything is Potable. The Boston Celtics podcast here on the Athletic Podcast Network. I am your host, Sam Jam Packard, professional sports fan. And today we have a bit of a different episode. For those of you who don't know, my real job, you know, the one that actually pays me money, uh, is working for a criminal justice reform organization. And obviously, um, in the moment we're experiencing right now in America and actually across the world after the murder of George Floyd, um, I have a lot of thoughts on the issues and I wanted to be able to talk to someone uh, and have a kind of a thoughtful conversation with someone whose work I respect and hopefully in a way that can educate fans of anything impotable about the criminal justice system because I think there are times where we the media and the general public can get very focused on the direct issue of police brutality and not understand that there's a really a, a systemic issue here the criminal justice system is is fundamentally broken and it produces unjust outcomes racially unjust outcomes and there's many different components to that that are not just police brutality. There's a number of different systems in place that kind of allow that. And that's a kind of an idea that I've been trying to wrap my head around and something I've done a lot of thinking about. And so I figured in kind of having a conversation about that, hopefully the the listeners uh, could learn. And that's why I brought on my guest, Matt Siegel, who is the legal director of the ACLU from Massachusetts. Uh, He's also a former public defender. And we had a conversation about kind of the Many different ways the criminal justice system is flawed and then kind of the debated the the values of incremental progress versus uh, something like uh, abolishing the police or defunding the police. And then because um, Matt Siegel is a big Celtics fan, we also talked about in the end kind of how the Celtics could respond, how Jalen Brown is kind of using his voice to respond. And then, you know, just because we were talking for a while, we got into some some actual basketball talk about how uh, the Celtics might fare moving forward in this hypothetical playoffs um, if it does end up happening. Fellas, did you remember that first time in high school when you realized that you too could smell like an axe? The whole axe body spray craze? Of the early 2000s, I mean, it it was then it dawned on me that, you know, smelling good was important. Ladies like men who smell like an axe. And so, you know what? I started getting into the, the Draca Noir game. I don't know if you pronounced that correctly, but you know what? You just, you didn't want to be the smelly kid. And being the smelly kid in school was not good. And you know what? Right now, if you want to graduate beyond kind of just the simple axe body spray, Hawthorne is the company for you. And getting Hawthorne cologne is very, very easy. Hawthorne is a uh, kind of men's good website that will cover you basically head to toe. You can take a two minute quiz online and they'll tell you the colognes that are right for you, the skincare products that are right for you, face care, uh, shampoo, everything. Everything uh, just from a two minute quiz. And then you're just, you risk no chance of being the smelly kid. And so, If you want to smell good, check out Hawthorne at hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co and use promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co and use promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co. And Jay and I will be back later this week to talk about all of the kind of much more basketball related things. But I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Matt Siegel. 
now Matt Siegel, the legal director from the Massachusetts ACLU, to discuss um, kind of many of the things going on in the world. Um, but I know him because he is a huge Celtics fan and actually uh, follows me on Twitter. And I thought he would be a good resource, at least selfishly, because there's a lot of justice issues um, I'd like to talk about. And I thought it'd be interesting to get his perspective. And the one reason um, I think I have a, a kinship to uh, Matt is because I saw in his Twitter profile that he's a former public defender. Uh, and my dad was a public defender for, for 30 years. So I kind of have this... Uh, this bond to those who are also in public defenders. And I think it also shapes kind of how I view a lot of what's going on right now, where we see a world of um, police brutality is clearly the main issue in the news. Um, but I think that is only one symptom of a larger, uh, fundamentally broken criminal justice system. And I think one of the things that is not getting as much focus is the kind of the role of uh, the prosecutor in um, kind of uh, this the fundamentally broken criminal justice system. And I think as legal director of the ACLU, Matt, you definitely, and as a former public defender, you have a, an interesting perspective on how it's not just police brutality, it's kind of a, a larger, um, for lack of a better phrase, like law and order approach, uh, one that which uh, the prosecutor has a major role. Uh, I think that's exactly right, Sam. And th thanks very much for having me and looking forward to, to chatting about all that. Um, so what would you see as, I guess, um, it's a it's a complicated relationship that uh, that the police and that uh, the d district attorneys have. And I think I'm, I hope we can use this conversation to kind of educate uh, listeners out there about what that is, because I think the thing that's interesting is that um, when we talk about police accountability and things like that, um, the prosecutor or the lo local district attorney are the ones who are responsible for kind of pressing charges against an officer or um, kind of trying to hold them accountable within the legal system. But the problem with that is at the same time, uh, the prosecutors rely directly on the police to kind of um, investigate their cases. They're, most of the time, the police are major witnesses in their cases and that they're doing a lot of the case work. And so there's right there is a systematic flaw in which um, the the kind of people designed to hold the police accountable are then uh, very much work with the police. And so there's this kind of a, a within the court system, there's just this flaw here where, um, and that's just one example of where I think things are kind of, there's a kind of a breakdown between um, the entire system for where you can increase, I guess, accountability, but I don't know how you like change that without changing kind of the larger structures. Yeah, I mean, w one of the things that we're seeing uh, in the streets of America right now is that the police are sort of everywhere. Y you know, they're they're the people who are called um, day to day when there are mental health issues or people who need, are in distress who really need help, not necessarily um, armed agents of the state. And when there are uh, protests about police misconduct. Who's there to police the protests? Well, the police. And maybe that's not a great situation because it's actually what we've seen is that the police are the ones uh, often who are um, ramping up tensions and sometimes creating violence. And, you know, what you're pointing out, which is exactly right, is that um, the same can be true when we're talking about the relationship between um, 
pol policing and prosecutors. Here in Suffolk County, which contains um, uh, Boston, we have a, a relatively new district attorney, Rachel Rollins, who was elected on a campaign to be a progressive prosecutor. Uh, well, um, that's great. But also the police department, which investigates the crimes in, in the Suffolk County and which brings cases to the district attorney, you know, that's the Boston Police Department. And there have been some public tensions between the district attorney's office, which is trying to fulfill a campaign pledge to be a prosecutor, prosecuting office, and the, the Boston Police Department, which has struggled, let's put it uh, kindly, with uh, racial disparities and other uh, other problems. Um, and the DA's office doesn't get to choose its police departments. So that's a real problem. But even even within those constraints, there are just huge numbers of things that prosecutors can do to make a difference. Uh, a prosecutor can say, look, we're not going to we're not going to prosecute certain low level offenses. And then, you know, the police department still has substantial authorities. But if the police officers know, look, if I uh, go out and try to arrest somebody for selling loose cigarettes, as happened to Eric Garner, um, you know, the DA's office has told me they're not going to bring that charge. Um, you know, and, and, and there could be low level larcenies, other things where the, the DA can say, look, we are just not going to encourage you, the police department, to go out there and to initiate encounters with people that can end up in violence over really small uh, offenses. And that, that can be very powerful as a tool for limiting needless interactions between the police and members of the community and in doing that to limit violence. And the thing I think is interesting about that, and you mentioned Rachel Rollins, and I think there's we've seen a wave of other, I guess, what we'll call progressive prosecutors like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, is that they can they can set the agenda for the police. If they suddenly decide that certain crimes are not going to be prosecuted, police will they they have the power to kind of still kind of make those arrests. But eventually they're going to stop doing that because they realize it's um, there's no purpose in it. But that's relying on basically the, the, the kind of the sole decision making of that prosecutor, it if you kind of change the systems and make it so the like low level crimes are no longer crimes, then you can elect any sort of prosecutor and then the the I guess the change is actually there. I think there the problem I, I see it is that there's like we're too reliant on the kind of actor in the system to be the best actor there is and we're reliant on a progressive prosecutor when Maybe if there's a if you make those low level crimes no longer a felony, there's there's less incentive. And so what what happens when Rachel Rollins is replaced by um, someone who's less progressive? If you just do, if you remove the option of them prosecuting for those crimes, I think you there's an opportunity to kind of remove or uh, reduce the need for police to be interacting with um, communities of color. Um, and. And the thing that's interesting is that so Rachel Rollins has that kind of discretion within her own within Suffolk County here, but she has no power to actually change state law. She has the ability, the kind of the discretion to which ones she's enforces. But if you really wanted a large scale uh, kind of change of the system, systematic conditions that would involve um, a change in the Massachusetts state legislature. And so it's interesting kind of how all of these systems um, interact, because. It's we, the, the progressive prosecutor is very, I guess, important in kind of these changes. But 
you know, as we can see that the sometimes systems, especially the criminal justice system, every actor can be act in good faith and there's still unjust and racially unjust outcomes. And so until there's kind of a, a system wide change, we're putting a lot of pressure on kind of these progressive prosecutors or people in power to make the right decision where it's I think it'd be larger scale change might come from kind of a, a larger scale change to kind of the, the systems in which they operate. Yeah, I mean, what, what you, I agree with that completely. I mean, what you're talking about is sort of the architecture of criminal justice in America and the architecture of policing. And uh, there are many different pieces of that. Prosecutors can make an enormous difference. And what you're pointing out is that difference can be good sometimes, but it can also be really bad. And so, you know, we actually, uh, my colleague at the ACLU of Massachusetts, Rasan Hall, led a campaign called What a Difference a DA Makes, which in advance of the recent elections, and it was just really to educate people about the enormous power that uh, prosecutors and DAs have in our communities so that people know when they go to vote that one of the most important positions on their ballot is actually their local district attorney. And what you're pointing out is, you know, it put is it creates a lot of risk to say that all we need is like one good DA or one good prosecutor, and that will fix everything. And the truth is, that's not going to fix everything. There are there are state laws and and federal laws that criminalize so many things, and then there's um, courts. Courts uh, interpret constitutional restrictions on unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, the federal constitution has a restriction against. Um, unreasonable searches and seizures, that's in the Fourth Amendment, and many state constitutions do as well, including the Massachusetts Constitution. And when courts determine what is reasonable and what is not, they are really, you know, the architects of a lot of the policing that we see. So yes, it would be good to see fewer things criminalized by legislatures. It would be good to see uh, courts, both at the federal level and the state level, Take another look at their cases in light of what we are seeing in America. How is it working out? Well, it's working out really badly. It's working out really badly because so much violence against community members has been authorized or deemed okay under the Constitution. It's it's working out poorly because we have authorized police to make arrests for really low-level offenses, and each arrest presents some risk. You know, there was a man named Philando Castile who was shot a few years ago. Um, and, you know, I remember reading how he had been stopped dozens of times by police before the encounter that killed him. And, you know, that kind of uh, constant contact, constant profiling, particularly of black men by the police, is possible because of the sheer volume of of criminal offenses we have created and the authority we have given to police. When I say we, I mean legislatures, city councils, mayors, police chiefs, and courts to to just go out and and try and try again until they um, until they you know find someone. And each of those encounters can get can cost someone's life. You know when I you mentioned your dad as a public defender, I, I worked at a, um, a federal defender office in. Uh, North Carolina for for a few years, and you know the thing about when you're a, a public defender is you get the case where the police found something, they found a gun, they found some drugs, but what you don't get 
are the hundreds or thousands of instances in which the police pulled somebody over and didn't find anything. And the, and it's the sheer volume of these interactions and the amount of violence that has been authorized for police to undertake, which has um, has led to all the, this um, violence and particularly against black people. And there's there's downstreams effect to that, too, because for all the people where there might have been something found um, there, black and brown people are, are the ones who are ending up in prison at a, a higher rate. There's a, just a, the, the kind of rate of mass incarceration in this country is all kind of the downstream effect of this effort to or where so many things are criminalized and we have a police force that is kind of like on the lookout for uh, so many different things. And you, it's interesting you mentioned how the courts shape that. Um, I think what I find interesting um, and I think uh, it's not something that many people know, but it's it's the because of kind of the adversarial system where we have where we, there is a I mean, the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh and I think Eighth Amendment are all uh, in the Constitution for uh, uh, the defense. Um, we have an adversarial system where the prosecutors, I guess, m- ultimate incentive is not necessarily the most just outcome. It's to it's to win. And I think. The courts are supposed to be there to um, make sure this that the kind of this adversarial system is fair. Uh, but you're describing a way in which um, kind of where the uh, eroding of the Fourth Amendment, it's kind of been um, at least the way I see it, uh, uh, the the stack or the deck is stacked in the prosecutor's favor um, in such a way that um, and I just don't think many people realize this. Many people think I think of law and order where the prosecutor and the police work together and they build a trial. But 95 percent of felony cases uh, are uh, the result of a plea agreement. And so there is no trial. There is no um, really evaluation of the evidence. It's uh, kind of a it's this downstream effect of just this motivation to, I guess, incarcerate um, and criminalize the the actions of the poor and it's just leads to disproportionate outcomes in terms of mass incarceration. And then while people are incarcerated there, it makes them harder for them to get a job and return to the community. And there's so many more downstream effects, but I think people don't, it's, there's a tough understanding because we just kind of ignore the kind of the, the simple justice there or give deference to um, law enforcement that being both, district attorneys and uh, police because uh, it's supposed to be in the interest of public safety, but there's no, there's no real questioning of that. And so it, I think that's where hopefully there's a mo- there's a moment now where more people can, I guess, become more educated about what the criminal justice system is. But there, what we're talking about on the, on the surface is kind of all of these dangerous interactions that are, that um, the police have with um, communities of color and, um, or communities, but then all of the downstream effects that just kind of reinforce this systemic problem um, uh, just continue to have negative effects for, um, I guess, the black community. Well, you, you know, I think that's a good point. I mean, but I, I also think that one of the most hopeful things about what we're seeing right now is that more people are starting to see that, you know, um, c- communities of color didn't need to be told that 
police violence was a problem. Communities of color didn't need to be told that um, we have a problem of mass incarceration in this country. So, and communities of color didn't need to be told that we have a problem of, uh, that racism is, is, is an enormous problem in this country and that institutional racism is an enormous problem. What I think our communities and our country have really needed is for um, other communities, for white communities to see that as a problem and to see it as their responsibility to do something about it. That that racism is not uh, a something that needs to be fixed by black people, <laughs> yeah. you know, and um, and so that's and so what's been heartening to me about the movement that we're seeing, the civil rights movement that's really happening right now um, as we speak is that it's the, the leadership in the communities of color has been amazing and you know com white communities other communities all across the country are participating in this and seeing it as their responsibility to speak out and to do something about it and i mean it's it's urgent we have a crisis uh we have a crisis of policing crisis of police legitimacy a crisis of racial uh, injustice and a crisis in our justice system because just as we are seeing um the, sa the same moment that we're seeing um uh, you know, black people shot by officers, we are also seeing in our prisons and jails, people who are locked up often needlessly, sometimes just for being poor. Um, and while they're in locked up inside, they're increasingly susceptible to this pandemic. And, and so what, you know, part of our work at the ACLU of Massachusetts has been focused in recent uh, weeks, as you can imagine, on on policing and, and racial justice. But also at the very same time, we're trying to limit the numbers of people who are incarcerated because we're seeing people get sick and die inside prisons and jails because they can't engage in the social distancing that the rest of us are are supposed to do and are able to do. So we are seeing all kinds of crises right now in our policing systems and our criminal justice systems. And it's vitally important for people, you know, basketball fans, you know, for people from, from all of uh, walks of life, not just people who do civil rights for a living, uh, to stand up and to, to join in this movement. And I think the thing that's important, at least, and this is something that I've um, done a lot of thinking about and kind of struggled with is that there's not just, I guess, one issue. I think when this all happened, um, like it's not just the the lack of police accountability. It's it's the kind of the systemic problem that we've been describing. And um, I think when this first happened, I my immediate reaction was because uh, I've had a job where it's very much working within the system to try and get make kind of incremental change to the system. My first reaction was, well, uh, to focus on um, the the eight can't wait that campaign zero put out is the, these are the things that can be done immediately because I think there are a lot of people right now who are like uh, we need action we need to do something and so um, you want to be able to I guess provide kind of those quick um, answers or things that can be done immediately but I think it's important that people realize that this is a systemic problem this is a fundamental problem of a broken system and that. If you're you're hesitant with uh, about ideas about like defund the police, um, I think it's important to kind of try and probe that because um, one of the problems with incrementalism, and I think we've seen this with A Can't Wait, is that there's a number of police departments that have those 
have those eight requirements and they will tweet out check marks for all eight of those. And that kind of, you don't want to, I guess, let those police departments off the hook because they might have all of those things, but because the rest of the system and the rest of the downstream effects are still quite broken, it's not going to have a, a large change. And so, like, yes, there are incremental things that I think the, that be, can, can be worked on, but I think it's very important to say, yes, we've done this and we need to keep going to fix the system. And I don't, I think it's important to kind of celebrate the, um, the small the small victories like in uh, Louisville, the city council just re- voted to uh, change the no knock um, warrant law. And I think that's great and a, a direct result of protests. But there's like it's how do you balance the kind of the the wanting that incremental progress, that small goal to kind of show people that they're being out there and protesting is working, but also kind of not let that be the focus, let the uh, actually have the goal being this larger kind of restructuring of how we think of public safety in this country. Yeah, it's a great it's a great point about sort of incremental change versus systemic change. And, you know, it's one that I've struggled with, particularly in recent weeks, because, you know, as a when I was a, a, an assistant federal defender and also um, at other times, you know, I might have an obligation to an individual client or I might have believed in certain reforms and I want to see them implemented. But I think, you know, I've got to be honest, you know, speaking just for me personally, that you know, the the last few weeks have really um, shined a light on the limits of incremental reform. Uh, and, you know, partly that's because that's what the police have said. The police have said, no, no thanks to inter- incremental reform for decades. And and so in, it's, in some ways, it's it's weird that the you know rejection of incremental reform has been laid at the doorstep of activists and organizers, because the people who've done the most to reject incremental reform have been police departments. Um, and it is it is really this is what they have wrought. But um, but I will say this, you know, um, I think there's a way to do both. We can recognize that that for better or worse, prosecutorial decisions and uh, individual cases make enormous difference in people's lives. I mean, you've got a client whose who's, um, uh, life, whose freedom depends on um, the, the outcome of a particular case. It's very fact-specific. It's not really good to say to them, well, you know, I'm, I'm for systemic change. Yeah. You know, because their life hangs in the balance, their freedom hangs in the balance. It, it makes important difference to people. So I think we can acknowledge um, that that individual cases, incremental change is incredibly important to people. Um, but at the same time, there's no I don't know of a single civil rights lawyer who thinks, you know, litigation is going to solve all of our problems. And uh, nobody, nobody I know believes that. And that's because it's not true. That's because systemic change is, is what's needed. And so, you know, we, we've tried to balance that in our office. I mean, uh, when, when I was um, a public defender, I tried to do some systemic work. We were able to, to win a case that um, resulted in, in, I think, hundreds of people being released from their unlawful sentences or, or, or um, uh, uh, convictions. And in the ACLU of Massachusetts, we've tried to do things that are reformist, but also systemic. So we had, we did, we worked on the um, the lab scandals 
in Massachusetts, where we had two former state chemists, one named Annie Dukan and one named Sonia Farrick, who engaged in this tremendous misconduct. And we built some advocacy that resulted in tens of thousands uh, of convictions being overturned. And that makes a huge difference in people's lives. And it's a systemic sort of reform. And similarly, with I mentioned the folks who are who are dealing with this pandemic while they're in prisons of jails. We brought a lawsuit um, in uh, in March that has resulted, we've been told so far, in more than a thousand people being released uh, from incarceration in Massachusetts since April. So, you know, I think there's ways even within the system to do systemic reform uh, at, while also recognizing that um, you, when you have a client, you have to pay attention to their individual circumstances. And one thing I would say is that the people who have the most freedom in some ways to do systemic reform are prosecutors. Because unlike uh, a defense attorney who has to do and should do whatever is best for their specific client, prosecutors, whether you're talking about Attorney General Bill Barr or the, your local district attorney, they have an obligation to do justice and they don't have individual clients who kind of who their decisions are tethered to so look at bill barr he dismantled some police accountability measures um that were in place in the obama administration he has uh, expressed zero interest in racial justice or keeping people safe from the police and there's there's nothing other than his personal disregard for black life that explains that and um, so, but he could take a different approach. He could go to, um, uh, he could restart some police investigations. He could go to the United States, he and, and Solicitor General of the United States could go to the Supreme Court and say, hey, Supreme Court, we want you to reconsider qualified immunity. We want you to reconsider your Fourth Amendment use of force case law that has endangered black lives. I mean, these are actual authorities that people have and they are just choosing choosing at a time of intense crisis not to use them, not to protect black lives. And there's no need for that. You can go to our friends at Roman.com. Roman.com have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Uh, normally it takes 29 days to see a doctor in major cities with Roman. Uh, they'll make it convenient for your schedule and you will get a free online visit within 24 hours of contacting Roman. If the doctor decides you need treatment and that it's right for you, the pharmacy can ship you your medication within two days. And so you can get uh, unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or if you wanna adjust your treatment plan. There's no commitments and you can cancel at any time. So if you want, if you wanna just give into that excitement, you want answers in three days, you can go to getroman.com slash Celtics for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Celtics for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. And I think it's it's interesting you bring up kind of the, the federal level and the Department of Justice um, because there's – I think there's a lot of frustration with um, the Trump administration, clearly. I mean, <laughs> there should be a lot of frustration, but there were things that the Obama Department of Justice wa was doing to try and, uh, I guess, I think – work within the system and create incremental progress. They had a, a project called Collaborative Reform, which was basically kind of consent decree light in which they would bring in 
um, and, and actually investigate uh, police departments that had kind of patterns and practices of unconstitutional policing, and they had provided some oversight. And I think, but that it, that also kind of comes back to kind of the issue of incrementalism versus large systemic changes that despite those things, and I think uh, the Philadelphia Police Department was one of those organizations and they had their officer involved shootings um, investigated and they were had a hundred recommendations and they had to go through all of them and they were, they kind of went through this process. Um, and so there's, there are things that were improving with the Philadelphia police department, but it doesn't really change the entire culture. And then we kind of see some of the, the violence from the Philadelphia police department recently, we can see that like, I don't know, those entire, uh, Obama era, uh, reforms or recommendations clearly didn't change the the larger system at hand, and so um, I I think there there has to be a kind of a, a dual approach where there is kind of the the working within the system and having those who are in power and have the discretion to kind of make pr uh, changes and improvements. Um, those being our elected officials or those who are currently in power, but then there also still uh, I think has to be pressure from. Um, the people and the protesters to kind of say that is it, it, to kind of say yes and I know that's like a improv phrase but like it's yes we need to do all of these things but and we need to keep pushing and I think it's just a it's a never ending battle I think they're, they're not I don't want to say battle but it's like a, a, a mission to try to uh, keep improving um, and continuous improvement to tie this back to the Celtics and that is the the Brad Stevens uh, mantra of Kaizen, which I've bought into so much. Um, but it's it's interesting how much there like it feels like there's limits to kind of the systemic uh, changes, uh, but they're also so necessary at the same time. Um, yeah, we I mean, we, we have the system we have, you know, I mean, I, I, I wish it weren't the case that so much police violence were, you know, was authorized. I wish it weren't the case that we have this system of mass incarceration. But right now, that's the system we have. And we can try to change and dismantle it. And, I, and I'm just I mean, like I said, like the, one of the things that's given me the most hope that I've had really in the last several years is to see the organizers and leaders of this movement who are who are pushing for that change. But at the same time. You know, people's lives hang in the balance with the current system, and we also need people to uh, use that system to protect those lives as much as possible. I also think it's an opportunity for larger growth. So as we work within the system, we can prove to people who may be skeptical, like, look, we've made this change in which we're no longer prosecuting low-level low level, uh, criminals. We're not no longer going to prosecute for drugs. And we... we we'll probably find out that the world's not going to fall apart. And so we can kind of use this, the incremental progress as evidence of showing that like this system that we have that is has, was so reliant on a war on drugs and a, a kind of um, prosecution of low-level crime that it, uh, as evidence that the kind of larger restructuring of the system won't hurt public safety. I think there's a – because the prosecutors and law enforcement have the – the very important, I think, role right now in our society of public safety, that they're given a lot of deference to whatever they think is uh, possible um, or whatever they need, uh, the kind of the public and politicians will give it to them. But I think as we kind of reduce their uh, their responsibility, I think the, it could be a kind of opportunity to see that like 
maybe we just need them to focus solely on on violent crime. Maybe we can uh, not give them complete kind of a blank check to do whatever they they feel is necessary to kind of continue the um, their existence. Yeah, I mean, I'll, let, me, let me give a couple examples. I mean, one of the things that we're talking about when talking about systemic performance, like, you know, there's this um, this scene, and I'm I, this is going to spoil the Matrix for people who haven't yet seen it. But there's <laughs> this scene in the Matrix right. where uh, you know where Neo, right, Keanu Reeves' character, suddenly sees not just what's in front of him, but he sees the green uh, characters and symbols that are behind what's been shown to him, and. You know, that's really, I think, what we what we need to do when it comes to policing, because what we are seeing right now on our video, you know, the cell phone videos and everything else are the moment when something terrible happens. And in order to really change these things and prevent them from happening, what we need to do is sort of see what's with the matrix that exists behind the last fatal moment in someone's life. So, you know, when Eric Garner gets you know, stopped and arrested for selling loose cigarettes. What we, it, it's it is important to see that that is police misconduct. That the chokehold applied to him was police misconduct. Okay, and it should never happen. It's also important to understand that you know why why you know, why is there a law that that makes it a criminal offense as opposed to like a you know nothing or a fine or whatever um, to sell loose cigarettes. There's also a Supreme Court case uh, that's that's lurking behind you know, sort of behind that encounter, a case from 2001 called Atwater against Lago Vista, and what the, and that what the Supreme Court held in that case is that the Fourth Amendment, the ban on uh, unreasonable uses of force, unreasonable searches and seizures, places no restriction on what kinds of offenses you can arrest for. So no matter how lame or meaningless or irrelevant to public safety on offenses, criminal offenses, the Fourth Amendment, says the Supreme Court, allows police to make an arrest for it. And, you know, so when Eric Gardner is killed, that's what's lurking in the background. And similarly, at my office, we, the ACLU Massachusetts, we had a case where our client, a uh, woman was hospitalized for bipolar disorder. She wandered away from the hospital and the hospital calls the police department and says, hey, could you bring her back? Well, why are they calling the police department? Why don't we have social workers? Why don't we have other people who are sent in that situation? You don't need to, to, to send an armed person to help a lady get back to her hospital room. Um, but okay, they send the police department. And what does the police officer do? Well, he you know, barks at our client to come with him and she's having a bipolar episode and so she doesn't go. And he and he says she took a step toward him. Now, is she going to hurt him? No way she's going to hurt him. He takes her to the ground. She's terrified. She pulls her arms underneath her uh, body because she's terrified, presumably. And he says, give me your arms so he can be handcuffed. Why do you need to handcuff someone to bring them back to a hospital? Um, and um, and he she won't do it. And he tases her in the back. So this is someone who outweighed our client by maybe 70 pounds. So, you know, that that's the moment we see, see, that's the moment we, you know, we focus on. But there's this architecture, there's this matrix behind it where every step of that encounter was done wrong um, because the law has permitted it to be done wrong. 
And, you know, fortunately, we got a decision that hopefully will will limit that going forward. But that, you know, what we need to see when we talk about systemic change is like every step of an encounter that results in violence against a member of a community is probably a place where change needs to happen. I think that's the most important takeaway is that with all the kind of discussion of bad apples, there are plenty of bad apples. And currently there's not a, a, a way to or a good enough way to kind of hold them accountable. But right now, as currently constructed, the criminal justice system here in the United States, which is actually a like a as many counties there are, there's that many different criminal justice systems and there's different rules and it's very complex. And then those those individual county systems are regulated by state law and then there's federal law, as you mentioned. But even if you take a remove all of the bad apples, we have a way in which the conditions uh, still result, even if everyone is acting in good faith uh, in racially unjust outcomes. And so I think there's needs to be a kind of a constant education uh, push for people to know that. And I think there's um, it's very important for the work that um, the ACLU is doing. And uh, it's just I don't think people have a, a full grasp of how it's not it's not just bad apples. It's literally the the we put people into a system that is designed to kind of pr- right now, as we currently it's constructed to produce bad outcomes. And um, I think the as we mentioned before, I think the incremental progress is important and there needs to be legislative push now. But I think there's like a, a fundamental recognition that the system is broken. Um, I think would be helpful moving forward. You mentioned kind of the work that um, the ACLU of Massachusetts is currently doing. I was curious if um, there's any other current projects that you are working on right now. And as we record this, um, the Boston City Council and the Boston Police Department and the mayor are kind of debating uh, what to do with the um, police's budget. I know, I'm sorry, I can't remember the um, woman on your staff who was tweeting out um, information about the Boston police budget. Um, but I was curious if there's anything, um, that the ACLU or, uh, I guess, specific campaigns that are, you were working on right now, um, for that kind of, for those who are looking for immediate action. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a couple things that I think people can do, particularly people in Massachusetts. So, so one of them is there are bills that are now, um, have been introduced in the Massachusetts legislature, um, that would, uh, uh, li- limit uses of force by the police, and that would uh, cut back qualified immunity, which is this extra layer of protection that courts have created for police officers who are sued for misconduct. That we and, would need a whole nother podcast just to try to yeah. explain qualified immunity and how messed so up I'm that not, is. So I'm not going to do that, but I am going to say that people can call their, you know, call your representatives in the Massachusetts legislature. And, you know, they can and voice support for these bills and voice support for holding police accountable. It's one thing for police to say, you know, we, we, we don't want to choke, you know, use chokeholds. But it, well, I've yet to hear police say, and we agree that we should be held accountable in court for when we violate that policy. And these are bills that would make that possible. It's really important that they pass. The other thing I would say is... Um, you know, you really it's you know, we got an election coming up. We have some uh, some elections that are going to come up in the future years, you know, paying attention to to local leaders, your district attorney, your sheriff, your people who have 
huge power over the lives of people who are accused of crimes or the lives of people who've been convicted of crimes. These, this is really where people can make an enormous difference in the lives of other folks in their communities. And so that, that's where we've been focused. As you say, on the, in, in Boston, we also have particular concerns. You know, as I sp I'm speaking just as a parent and not as an ACLU person, like, I don't know if my kids are going to be in school or not in the fall. I do know that it's been suggested that we need really small class sizes to make that safe. Well, where's that money going to come from? Uh, how are we going to do that? And so it is in that context that I, as a parent, look at this debate over police budgets. You know, maybe now is not the time to be um, paying officer so-and-so in Boston three hundred thousand uh, dollars, including hefty chunk of overtime. Maybe that's not really <laughs> um, uh, where uh, the the public's money should be going at a time when we really need every last penny to make sure that we get through this pandemic okay, and that our children get through it okay. So you know, we have been looking at the the um, our office has been looking at the budget for the Boston Police Department. It's incredible how much how much money is spent on policing and how relatively little money has been is being invested in in the community itself. Um, so I, that's a really important area where on a municipal level, your town, your city, you can get involved and take a look, particularly given that we're all worried right now about what the fall is going to look like. Um, having a say in your town or your city's budget is a way to make a difference. And I, that's the thing I would stress having done a lot of work in state governments and local governments is that it, it's probably not the most exciting process and like people seem to not care as much if it's not a kind of a national election, but they it has a tremendous impact about who the DA is and that, that who the DA is has a tremendous impact on kind of the the opinions of local state legislatures because they need want their DA's approval before they vote on any criminal justice bills. There's there's a lot of ways in which um, the ordinary citizen can like it's not like these people have large campaign staffs or large offices. Like if you show up and make your voice heard, you're going to it's going to be more impactful. And there's things that can be done in local level just in terms of just kind of civic engagement and like holding politicians um, and those who are elect accountable on the local level can make a, a huge impact moving forward. Um, yeah, I realize, yeah. oh, go ahead. Just want to say one thing about that. I need to give you a spe specific example, which is like face surveillance technologies, right? So right now we've got a mass you know, protest movement of people in the streets. This is not the time for police departments to be using, say, face surveillance to identify protesters or to identify anybody. And we also have this, you know, the, the budgets are bloated enough already and we, we need money to, to fight this pandemic. So, you know, that's a specific thing that people can pay attention to. Is your town, is your city using or thinking about acquiring face surveillance technology? And is, and, and is that is now the time to maybe press pause on that and make sure that, that, that your, your money is actually being invested in your community? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And we've seen, I think, some police departments retaliate against uh, people who have been protesting and go send 40 cops to arrest someone and, and things like that. And so it's a it's a very good point where there's just the more engaged like the citizenry can be in uh, on all of these issues. I think the, the better outcomes um, we will get now that 
uh, we have gone 40 minutes, and this is allegedly a basketball podcast, so I'll try to transition as smoothly as I can. Um, kind of the recent news, which has been interesting, um, an old friend Kyrie Irving has kind of come back into the fold talking about um, whether or not the players should go back um, and whether or not kind of the return to basketball might be a distraction from, I guess, the Black Lives Matter movement. And to me, I'm, I'm quite conflicted on it because as someone who desperately wants to see basketball return and is dying to see what the kind of the Celtics would look like in the playoffs, um, I want basketball to return. And then I also see the, the kind of argument that it might be might serve as a, a distraction. But um, I think I'm leaning towards that at if basketball does return, I think that is the largest platform that a player like, um, well, I don't know if Kyrie Irving's going to be there or show up, but like someone like on the Celtics, Jalen Brown, like playing in the playoffs and then having a, a message afterwards, I think he could be used as a, as a tremendous platform moving forward. And so I don't know if there, I don't even know what my question is for you, Matt, but I am curious about your <laughs> thoughts about like what the, um, what do you think about basketball returning? And, and I guess, how do you think the Celtics specifically, I think Jalen Brown has been the most vocal, but we've seen a lot of players attending the protest. What is the way in which you think the Celtics can be kind of most effective in um, promoting the message of, of the systemic change that we've been talking about? Yeah. So I, I mean, like you, I really want to see them play. I mean, we're, you know, right now we're watching like uh German soccer games and uh, Spanish soccer games and, yeah, and kind of, you know, and like that's those are the leagues that we can watch and we love that. But I mean, I love watching the Celtics play. My parents both grew up in the Boston area. It was like we had the record of the recording of the Havlicek stole the ball announcement that we would listen to when I was growing <laughs> up. So, you know, I, I and I also I, I got three kids and I watched Celtics games with my my oldest kid. Um, so I'm desperate to watch the Celtics play again. Uh, but, you know, I, what I would say is, um, you know, I, I'm not in a position to to um, to know what's right for 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 the players, for their families, uh, for the league. Um, what I would say is, you know, when the NBA shut down, like they they really I mean, that was probably the most significant moment, at least from my perspective of the pandemic response. Because we obviously have an enormous leadership vacuum at the federal level, let's put it kindly. <laughs> uh, and so when the NBA halted its season, you know, that was really the moment when it was obvious that this spring was going to be the way it has become. And I think that that showed enormous leadership by the NBA. And I think that whatever the NBA does going forward and whatever the players decide to do, there are ways to display leadership. Uh, like that. And I hope that they keep that mantle of being a, a leader, not just, you know, in basketball, but for our country, for for our communities. You know, my kids, like their dad is a civil rights lawyer. Their mom is a lawyer, you know, but who do they look up to? They look up to athletes. Right. So, you know, um, uh, and so I think whatever decisions pe players make um, or teams make, there are going to be opportunities to show leadership to show leadership about how to respond to the pandemic, but also to show leadership about the the movement that we're seeing in the streets of America and the movement to protect black lives. I mean, it's just enormously powerful, whatever players choose to do. 
I, I would have to agree. I think there's definitely they have the power. They have the in, you mentioned with kind of the when the NBA stopped, that felt like kind of when the United States realized, oh, we're, we need to stop. And so I think it's it's correct that we don't necessarily have the right answers. It's the what the players themselves feel like is is best for them. Um, that being said, I do want them to return, and I'm very much looking forward to basketball. And so I think we can operate in the hypothetical world that they are returning and they're going to start playing games on on June or July 31st. With that being said, as a Celtics fan, I guess what are you most excited for if basketball is returned? Do you do you, what do you think the Celtics' chances are in this kind of crazy eight games and then playoffs moving forward? Well, I, you know, I don't even make predictions about legal cases, so I'm not going to make <laughs> predictions about basketball. But I love. No, this is the team. time to get your hot takes out. This is your one opportunity. So uh, sports don't really matter that much. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if if they do start, you know, Milwaukee is the big big problem. But also, you know, Toronto is good. I mean, they're they're you know, it's not like the you know several years back where the East was like you know a, you know an easy walk, uh, and so. So Milwaukee is a ama- you know an amazing team, but I love the Celtics. I mean, and I think that you know one thing is about one thing about it is like I obviously hope they can they can pull it off and come out of the East. Um, uh, but I think that they're just a great team to root for. I mean, I'm like the kind of person I'll like I will literally pause and rewind and like show my kid a Marcus Smart defensive play just because I think he's he just can see everything happen before it happens and just watch him get a position. So I just love watching this team. I think they, they fight really hard. And I guess the hope for me as a fan is that if they're, you know, in this, in a playoff environment, they will do better because they, they're more of a playoff team in terms of their toughness. Um, and if the, and if, you know, if Marcus Smart is allowed to play some defense, <laughs> you know, if uh, and if the team's allowed to play, you know, tough basketball, I think that they can they can, you know, lock some teams down in a way that regular season basketball don't doesn't always allow teams to do. So that that'd be my hope for for how they would how they would be able to get get past some of the other teams is is if you know they're allowed to play you know, a little tougher on defense. Yeah, I mean, and Brad Stevens is definitely a defensive-minded coach. And, and in the playoffs, when you kind of are able to scout and have matchups and make adjustments, the Celtics team defense, they fly around, and it's definitely led by Marcus Smart. And I have to give a shout-out to my man, Daniel Tice, for being a, an anchor on that as well. But I do think they have um, the defensive potential to be one of those top teams. And I think the another reason to give hope is that um, – just the emergence of Jason Tatum as like a, a kind of a superstar, a guy who's potentially the best player in a series. Because just as the Celtics are going to ramp up on defense and really like slow down scoring, um, when the Celtics are on offense in the playoffs, it kind of comes down to is there a guy on your team who can kind of get his own shot and kind of be efficient with it? And I think the Celtics have two guys who can do that. Um, Kemba, uh, who's hasn't really been in the playoffs before, but or in a while still has that ability, but then to have someone like Jason Tatum at his size and his length to be able to do it as well, I think gives the Celtics fans much reason to hope moving forward because they have both the lockdown defense and the kind of one-on-one scoring that is kind of need for success in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the best things about watching the team this year. I mean, last last season was really tough, obviously. And, you know, there were questions like, oh, is the team regressing? Are players, you know, not as good as we thought? Um, and 
but this season really proved all that wrong. I mean, the play that everyone played really well. Jennifer Brown has been playing amazing basketball. You know, Tatum obviously has had a great season. Um, and you know, and so the hope is that it can all come together. I mean, Kemba getting a taste of the playoffs for the first time and, you know, really meaningful minutes and, and hopefully it's like, even, you know, this time off, maybe Gordon Hayward will like have had more time to recover and he'll be uh, closer to being back to 100%. And, you know, so the team could really come together greatly for, for the playoffs. And now if, if they happen, <laughs> so. if they happen, who knows what's yeah. going to happen in the eight games beforehand? I mean, it's it's really completely unprecedented, and it feels like the NBA is kind of trying to set this up, build like they they're they're trying to build a car as it's moving, and we'll we'll see what happens. I think it's going to be fascinating, fascinating no matter what. But um, it's just definitely exciting to to have the the possibility of basketball coming back, even in in. Um, a world of where of all the things we discussed in kind of the first 45 minutes, I don't want it to be a basketball to be a distraction uh, from the kind of the larger issues at hands, but I, I think it will be, um, it could be a, a unifier moving forward. And it's definitely something that um, I'm excited for. And so uh, I'm just hoping that uh, we do get basketball and, um, but I don't know, it's, it's tough to kind of focus on basketball when, you know, we spent the first 45 minutes of this conversation talking about, fundamental flaws in our criminal justice system so well doing, the, doing my best to balance both of those feelings <laughs> yeah the thing is i mean um it you know we we love sports for a reason i love sports for a reason and that is you know i i don't think um we we want to have to think about um issues of police violence all the time and so you know i think that these things are these things are are both true you know we we want to work towards systemic change in our justice system, uh, in our criminal legal system, so that you know people can just live their lives, play sports, do things that are fun, and not have to worry as much about you know whether going out to the basketball court is is taking your life in your hands. And um, and I think that's it's both of these things are true, and both of these things can be important. Well, I'm I'm glad you were able to put a finer cap on it than I was, and so I uh, appreciate you uh, that, and I appreciate you um, joining me just for this discussion. I hope it was uh, educational for the listeners out there. It definitely helped me kind of formulate and uh, kind of reflect on a lot of uh, the feelings I've had. So I just want to appreciate you for um, taking the time out of your day and uh, coming on to to speak with me and joining anything is possible. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Sam. And uh, there's nothing I like more than talking civil rights and basketball. So, <laughs> All right. So you might have to come back because I, it's probably not going away. But uh, thanks again, uh, Matt Siegel from the ACLU, Massachusetts. He's the legal director. Thank you for listening to that conversation with me and Matt Siegel. I hope it was educational, informative, um, and somewhat entertaining. Please, if you like the pod, subscribe, listen, download, give us five stars, all that podcast stuff. If you want to subscribe and read Jay's work on The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash anythingispodable. You can subscribe there. And uh, if you want to support the ACLU or learn more about uh, Matt's work, you can go to aclum.org. That's aclum.org. And thanks for listening. Tune in later this week. Jay and I will dive into all things NBA and uh, figure out whether or not they're actually going to play this season.